Hi, my name is Christy Kramer, and this is Michigan Unsolved, the true crime podcast that is solely focusing on unsolved cases in Michigan. There is no case too small. My goal is to give victims of unsolved crimes the voice they deserve. Hello, my friends. I hope everyone is very well today. Um, I think I've decided to start each of these episodes with that greeting. Hello, my friends. Um, One of my listeners told me uh, last week, I believe it was, that she feels when she's listening to these episodes that she's listening and talking to a friend. And that really touched me. Um, I thought that was extremely sweet. I know I can get a little emotional on some of these podcast episodes, and given the topics that we're discussing, I think if I wasn't somewhat emotional and was more robotic like some of the other podcasts that I've listened to, I think there would be a problem. (laughs) Um, So... I, yeah, you guys are my friends. And honestly, I, I'm so grateful for you all. I really am. Uh, before we move on with today's case, I uh, really want to remind you guys of the importance, and I'm probably going to reiterate this later, but um, the importance of sharing these episodes. It is so extremely important to get this information out there. I don't think I've realized how little information is covered in the general, like, news stories. Really, until until I started working on today's case. In order to give you guys the most complete information about today's story, I literally read... I would say over 75 articles and each one would tell just a little piece of the puzzle. And then I ended up having to sit down and watch hours and hours and hours of, I believe it was a total of about 11 or 12 hours that I watched of the preliminary hearings. I watched countless interviews and listened to other podcasts just to make sure that I had as much information as I could to present to you. And you'll understand why as we get further on. But there is, I've known about this case since 2016 when the incident happened. Okay. Um, I knew the names, but I didn't know the facts. I had no idea the details of the facts of this case and I am, I'm floored and I can pretty much guarantee you that the majority of you are going to believe, completely be blown away by what you hear today because and I, and I totally understand like there's no way unless you, there was like a you know, a a two hour special Dateline episode or something like that, where they can really devote intense time to each case. 
But that is what I'm trying to do is bring awareness to these cases, as I've said a million times. Um, I know I probably sound like a broken record, but the importance of sharing these episodes to, you know, just share it on your page. Even if one or two people listen, maybe something will be triggered. And, and honestly, I know I have a lot of listeners from the area that today's case is from. Like people that literally live within a five mile vicinity. I actually know one of the listeners lived so close they could see the house from their own. Okay. So you don't know the potential that sharing these episodes can have. It could trigger a memory. It could trigger a thought. And that actually comes up later. Like the the mother of the victim makes that statement. Like you just don't know what can trigger a memory. So again, please continue. Share the Facebook posts. Share the stories. Because that's what it's about. It's about getting this information out there in the most complete form that we can. And pray to God that some of these cases or all of these cases get solved. Before we move on with today's case, I want to um, share with you that April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. As a trigger warning, this case does discuss murder. It discusses discusses a sexual assault. Uh, FYI. Okay. Because I know that can be triggering to some. So I just want to make you aware of that. I know I've said it before, but if you feel like passing, go right ahead. I get it. I totally get it. But, um, I will try to be sparing on some of the details so that it's, I am not going to be graphic in any way, shape or form. So that should help. But um, this is a podcast about Michigan unsolved cases. So I do think that it's important to uh, share some of these statistics with you. I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this. And I know that we have listeners. We have listeners from 11 different countries outside of the U.S. And I know for a fact that we have multiple Many, many, many listeners from outside of Michigan. But for the people in Michigan, I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but Michigan is number three within the country of the highest number of rapes per 100,000 people. Now, that is including men and women. It is not just, you know, just sticking with the women. It's both genders. We are at 72 per 100,000 people. And actually, I'm not even sure this may very well just be so far in 2023. I'm just going to double check really quick because I found that these statistics were just freaking wild. Um, as I said, the uh, Michigan is the third highest and that bothers me. 
It really does bother me. I think we really need as people to do better. Okay. Um, consent. Huge. Teach your children. Teach your children about consent because um, a lot of sexual assaults, they're not stranger related. So many, so many are uh, like acquaintance uh, within relationships. It's, it's wild. So I, I highly suggest and recommend that um, you take some time over the next, you know, week or so and really kind of deep dive into uh, the statistics of sexual assault in Michigan in your if you're outside of Michigan in your own state and just look at the enormity of of I I would I dare to say epidemic honestly because it happens and uh it's heartbreaking it really is it's very very sad and Trust me, I mean, I, I don't like to put, you know, my own personal business out there, but as a survivor myself, it's, it's hard when you look at the statistics and you, you know, to really put all that into perspective. It's, it's a tough one. So, like I said, I really encourage you just to, just to check out the, um, rain.org, R-A-I-N-N.org. They're a wonderful, wonderful company, not company, but an organization, um, that does so many incredible things. And um, the other one that I wanted to mention was, and of course now I can't find it because, yep, I can't find it now. But I will mention it at another point because it's a wonderful, wonderful group. So I'll have to take a look at that later. But anyway, so um, yes, please, please do some research because we, we definitely, we have to do better as people. So that brings me to today's case. Uh, I am going to tell you right now, this episode is a little bit different. Somebody, I told somebody that I was covering this case and they told me, well, isn't this case solved? Yeah, yeah, I don't know how to say if it's a yes, no, not really. Um, there is little doubt, very little doubt. I mean, like minuscule amount of doubt of who the killer is. And he's actually in prison ser- um, serving a sentence from an unrelated crime. Um, but there's a really strong, and this, this, oh, this makes me so angry, <laughs> but there's a strong possibility that he may not be convicted for the crime that I'm going to tell you about. And when I give you the details about this crime, Trust me, you're going to be blown away. It's so crazy. So, um, as I said, the amount of articles, interviews, and hours of court hearings that I researched to cover this was completely astounding. 
I waded through all of them to make sure I could give you guys the most complete timeline that I could. And the reason I say timeline is because that's kind of how I'm going to present this. I'm going to go literally as a timeline. So make sure you pay attention to the dates and there's going to be very little jumping around. We're literally going to start from the beginning and, and go to the end. And the end is literally like today. I mean, there is no finality here, but there's, there's just so much. If you are from Southeast Michigan, especially the west side of like the Detroit metro area, Livonia, Farmington Hills, uh, Westlands, that area. I grew up on the west side of Detroit, which is about 15 minutes from where the situation happened. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a tough one. It really is because like, I, I really, I, I remember this so, so vividly. Here we go. Danielle Ann Sislicki was lovingly known as Danny. And for the most part, that is how I'm going to refer to her as we discuss this case today. She was born February 28th, 1998. I'm sorry, February 28th, 1988. And she was 28 years old at the time of her dis disappearance on December 2nd, 2016. She is the oldest child of Anne and Rich Stizlicki. She has two younger sisters and a younger brother. She graduated from Redford Union High School in 2006. And again, this brings me right in there because I, the elementary school that I went to when I was younger was part of the RU school district. If I had stayed in that district, I would have graduated from the same school that she had 10 years later, 10 years earlier. So this, like I said, it really, this one sticks, this one hits home. Uh, Danny had a very large circle of friends. She was very dependable. She was a people person and she would help anyone in need. And her father has told multiple news outlets that he feels that her willingness to help anyone in need actually may have led or um, kind of added to her disappearance. Danny lived in the independent screen apartments in Farmington Hills near 10 Mile and Halstead. And she worked, I believe it was about 10 minutes away at the Metropolitan Life Insurance Agency, better known as MetLife, on Telegraph Road in Southfield. Also close to 10 miles. So she probably took 10 mile to and from home. Her parents uh, lived in Fowlerville, Michigan, um, in the country off of a dirt road, which is a very significant fact for later on. And they were about 50 miles from Farmington Hills where Danny lived. Danny would visit them often. In fact, she had visited, she had been there recently prior to her disappearance. She was last seen wearing blue jeans, a black zip up shirt 
a blue Eddie Bauer coat and burgundy boots. And more than $125,000 has been raised as a reward for her, for, I don't even know what they're calling it at this point, if they're calling it just for information or what, but, um, yeah, a lot of people have stepped up. A lot of people have stepped up. So that's, that's huge. So we're jumping right into the timeline and there's going to be a lot of dates and times. So just an FYI there. In 2007, Danny started a job at MetLife in Southfield. This was shortly after she graduated. During her employment, she was known by all who knew her as a very friendly person. She was described by her manager as having a great work ethic. Sorry, um, She got along well with everyone and any time that like she was sick or something like that and she couldn't come into work, she always called. And in those instances were very rare in itself, but she was extremely dependable and always made sure to call. And again, that will come up into play later as to why that is important. But like her manager was actually called onto the stand to testify as to her dependability. In 2013, a man by the name of Floyd Galloway Jr. marries a woman named Eileen. In 2015 to approximately 2016, and I don't know the start date of his employment, but I'm going to go with the dates that I can verify. As I said, Danielle Sislicki worked at MetLife in Southfield. While she was employed, she was, like I said, she was extremely friendly with everyone. And this included uh, the security guards who were contracted to work the building. They were not hired by MetLife. They were actually hired by the building management company. There was a security guard by the name of Floyd Galloway Jr. who was uh, kind of smitten with her in a way, although he was married. A lot of her co-workers, as well as Danny's mom, who actually worked in the building with her, have commented that they did feel like he may have had some type of a crush. Um, so... He would, he would uh, make it a point to go up to the cafeteria while she was at lunch to talk to her. Um, her mom would be there to witness this, as other coworkers would as well, and he was the only security guard to do this. None of the other ones would. They found this to be odd. Also, he would come up to her cubicle which, again, was very out of the ordinary and did not happen with the other uh, security guards. On October 28th, 2015, Danny received a special delivery at her desk at work. 
It was a bouquet of flowers with a note that said they were from a secret admirer. The odd thing was that Donnie's, I'm sorry, Danny's building had very specific rules about deliveries. If something came to the be if something came to the building, it would be left at the front with the security or with the mailroom and the receiver would come down. But these flowers were delivered straight to her desk. So while it was nice to receive the beautiful flowers, it was a little unnerving at the same time because she didn't know where they came from and it, they came from somebody within the building. So I, you know, it, it, Reminds me back years and years and years ago where uh, I don't know if I remember if it was a movie or a skit, but, you know, it was the calls coming from inside the house. You know, it's like they're you're supposed to be safe. You know, she was supposed to be safe at her job. And I'm sure, yeah, she was unnerved. It was weird, you know, and the note that was attached to the flowers was actually written on a yellow sticky note. So this was not like a delivery service little card stuck in the flowers. It was a yellow sticky note, which was probably an office supply from the building. And the note said, from Secret Admirer, hope this made you smile today. Then two days later, on October 30th, 2015, the man that we mentioned before, Floyd Galloway, asked Danny via text if she had plans for the evening. So he had actually reached out to her on the phone. Danny tells Floyd that she's going out for her friend's 30th birthday. And then she asks him if he knew anything about the flower delivery a couple of days before. And he denies. He said he does not know anything about them. And he said, why, was it like your birthday or did something special happen? And she says, no, they've just been trying to figure out who sent these flowers. I'm going to give you a heads up. It was proven through forensic handwriting specialists that the note was written by Floyd Galloway Jr., if you haven't figured it out by now, Floyd Galloway Jr. is our accused. We'll use that word. Floyd, at that point, still texting Danny, invites her to his house to play a drinking game before she goes out for the evening. Now, remember, I told you before that in 2013... He was married. He's still married today. Okay. Well, he's still married in 2015. When he invites Danny to his house to play a drinking game prior to her going out, Danny declines the invite. There were some other text messages back and forth between the two at other times. Um, you can tell in reading the text messages, I wasn't going to type them all out and all that, but you can tell in reading them that he is very interested and her responses are friendly, but uh, not leading on in any way, shape or form. She's just talking to a friend, you know? 
One thing that Floyd neglected to tell Danny during these text conversations as he invited her to his house on October 30th is that that day was actually his wife's birthday. Let's think about that one for a second, shall we? Then let's move on to September 4th, 2016. So almost a full year later, an unnamed 28-year-old woman was jogging along Heinz Drive around 6 p.m. Now, I don't know if you listened to last week's episode, um, Heinz Drive actually came up. Um, It is that long stretch of road that's like 17 miles long with all the parks and it runs along the Rouge River. It's, um, there's, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. There's hiking trails and biking trails and jogging trails. There, it's, there, a lot of people spend a lot of time on Heinz Drive. So this woman, um, decided to go for a jog along the drive. She started at Joy Road and Farmington Road and had jogged about 4.5 miles when she decided to turn around and head back to her car. On the way back to her car, she took a path through a wooded area because, like I said, there's a lot of paths that kind of go all over the place. And as she ran past a man walking in the opposite direction, he reached out and grabbed her from behind. He put his arm around her neck and put her into a chokehold until she almost passed out. And then he hit her repeatedly in the face. And then he started to remove her clothes. And then he started to remove his clothes. And she's fighting back. And she's telling him or asking him, what is it that you want? What do you want? And his response, the only words that this man mutters to her, the only four words out of the man's mouth that is trying to assault this woman is, I just want sex. Now, some reports say that she fought him off. Other reports say that he got startled and she was able to get away. He himself says that he let her go. I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. But the important part is, is that she did get away prior to him actually following through with his act. She was able to get to the main road where she was able to flag down a call in a car and call 911. A report was filed and she was able to give a fairly detailed description of her attacker he this I honestly think it was kind of the spur of the moment thing um I don't honestly think that it was premeditated because especially because he let her go I the reason I say that is because he was not wearing a mask he was not covering himself up in any way um You, I mean, you got to be pretty stupid, I guess, to to purposely plan to to rape a woman and let her go without covering your face. 
right? I to me this to me this was a spur of the moment thing. I I don't know, but that's how I feel. So they came up with a pretty solid composite sketch. Then um they you know, they collected DNA. They they even though he did not follow through with the act, they they were able to collect DNA from her. Which wonderful, awesome. This this chick is just like a hero, okay? Seriously, hero. And she has never been named, which is even more amazing. Then let's go to late September, early October. We have not been able to pin down the exact date. But the building that housed the MetLife Insurance Agency was sold. And a new management company came in. And they let the security company that employed Floyd Galloway go. So he was no longer a security guard at that facility. So you're talking the end of September, early October. All right. Danny went missing December 6th, 2016. So almost a solid, probably a good two months Okay, at the at the shortest two months, possibly longer, the entire month. Wait, no. Yeah, the entire month of November, probably the entire month of October and the first week of, Je- of December. So you're looking at a solid two months that he was not in that building. So. In fact, there was no security in the building on December 2nd. I'm sorry. It was December 2nd, 2016, that Danny went missing. There was no security in the building the day she went missing. On October 31st, 2016, Floyd Galloway Jr. starts a new job with SecureTel Security Services and was assigned to work at American Axle in Rochester Hills. He was going to be working, uh, I don't know if you'd call it an evening shift, but he was going to be working from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Monday through Friday. November 28th, 2016, Floyd's wife, Eileen, purchased a dark gray 2011 Buick Regal CXL, and this car was purchased in her name solely um, and was issued a temporary plate. Both uh, Floyd Galloway and his wife, Eileen, were there to take delivery of the car on the 28th. Later that day, Eileen Galloway entered the Carmanos Cancer Center in Detroit that afternoon. Uh, she had been battling cancer. I do not know for how long, but I she was doing chemo treatments at that time, and she was having some side effects, and so she actually was admitted that day on the 28th. The sales manager from the Lincoln dealership testified at the preliminary hearing on September 8th, 2019, that the pre-owned car that was sold had approximately 51,000 miles on it and was in good working condition on November 28th when they picked up the car. He also stated that neither Floyd Floyd Galloway or Eileen Galloway ever contacted the dealership to report any issues with the car after it was sold. Now, again, that will make sense in a little bit. I'm trying to keep things in order, but 
that pertained to the purchase of the car. At an unknown time on December 1st, 2016, Floyd Galloway calls his the Securetel Security Services to tell them that he will not be able to work on December 2nd, 2016, which was a Friday, because he had a doctor's appointment. This was kind of like a last minute thing. I don't, like I said, I don't know what time it was. Uh, his boss could not recount the time, but I know they were kind of in a jam to get somebody to cover for him. So I'm guessing it was probably later in the day. At 5.17 p.m. on the 1st, Eileen texted Floyd, don't forget to take the garbage out tonight because Friday morning was garbage day. Um, Floyd replied to Eileen and said, I won't. Now we're going to go on to December 16th. And I'm going to take a brief pause here for a second because this is where it gets kind of gritty. So, okay, so here we are on December 2nd, 2016. At approximately 11 a.m., cell phone records show that Floyd Galloway's phone leaves his home and heads west. Now, a lot of these details are based off of cell phone pings off of towers, but we are talking about very highly populated areas. There's, there's no country here. Okay. These are, this is the suburbs, very highly populated, and they can pretty much pinpoint where, um, the cell phone is at any given time with, and I forget how many feet, but it's, it's darn close. So these are pretty accurate details and these came from the FBI. So, and these were actually, I got these from the preliminary hearing. So this information is like crazy accurate. All right. So again, 11 AM, uh, he leaves his home and heads West. His home is actually in Berkeley at 2910 Oxford Road. Okay. At 11.14 a.m., cell phone records show a ping that Floyd was at the MetLife building. The police, I have seen multiple interviews with the police where they state that they feel that he was there to see if Danny was at work that day that he was looking for her car because there would be no other reason he had not worked there in two months. There would literally be no reason for him to be there at 11 26 AM. His cell phone was at his home in Berkeley. So he left his home at 11 goes to the MetLife building and then goes immediately back to his home. Now, I have not been able to confirm the time, but after he was home at 1126, he then arrives at the Carmanos Cancer Center in Detroit. I'm thinking probably around 12 o'clock, but I really do not know for sure. I've tried so many times to confirm the time, but I can't find it. Then at 
2.43, he sends a text to his friend Brian Osborne, and he says, um, do you know Ely, or Eily, I'm sorry, Eily is what um, Eileen's family called her, including Floyd. Um, um, do you know Eily is in the hospital? And then at 2.47, Floyd sends another text to Brian and said, just left to go to work. Emotions are all over the place. Chemo is starting to get to her. Okay, let's pause right there for one second. Talking about setting up, setting up your alibi. Okay, so the day before he called in and said he was not going to be at work. He starts work at 3 p.m. And then at 2.40, at 2.47, on the day that he's not working, he texts his friend and said, I just left to go to work. 2.47, when he would be working at two at 3 p.m. So that just let your mind start kicking into gear there. Hello, premeditation. You're planning this out. You're already setting up your alibi. Especially... Since cell phone records do not show show Floyd leaving Carmanos until 2.58 p.m. So, that's interesting, huh? At 3.52 p.m., Danielle Danny receives a text from her best friend, Sarah. Now, Sarah was having a really rough day, and... She worked we she worked midnights and she was thinking about calling in that night. She was, you know, really, really having a rough time. And Danny, you know, I read these texts that went back and forth between the two of them, and Danny just really felt for her friend. And she said, you know, do you want to, you know, meet up? And Danny agreed to meet her for dinner, and then she was going to come stay the night with her friend to be there for her. Because that's just the kind of person she is. She told Sarah that she did have to work the next morning on, uh, it would have been December 3rd at 8 a.m. She had to teach a class. So she had to stop home to get a bag. And she had a cat, Adelaide, who was like her child, her baby. And I'm sure she had to feed Adelaide as well. So she told, she told Sarah she would stop at home, pick up a bag, and then she would meet her. She'd come to her place and they would meet for dinner. That text that Sarah got from her best friend would be the last communication Sarah would ever get from Danny. As I said, Danny was scheduled to lead a training class the next morning from 8 to 12 on Saturday, December 3rd. Now, at 3.54 p.m., cell records indicate that Floyd had left his home in Berkeley and was headed west, the opposite direction of work. So, obviously, we know he was not going to work. Then at 3.56 p.m., his phone is turned off. The afternoon of December 2nd, at approximately 4.40, Danny and another co-worker named Debbie left the MetLife building through the front door to the front parking lot. They go their separate ways, 
but Debbie notices that Danny does not go to her car. She heads over to a dark gray Buick in the lot that has its hood up. She sees a African-American man at approximately 5'8", and he was dressed in a suit. Danny and the man were talking, and Debbie recognized the man. It was a man that she didn't know his name, but she had seen him in the building before, like in the elevator and stuff. So the man and Danny were talking. He was kind of gesturing to his engine. And Debbie felt confident enough to leave Danny. The co-worker, Debbie, does believe that the man who was talking to Danny was Floyd Galloway Jr. At approximately 448 to 450, okay, so just, oh, I'm sorry, my apologies. At 448 p.m., cell phone records show that Danny's phone is moving east away from the MetLife building. At 4.48 to 5, I keep saying 5, sorry, at between 4.48 and 4.50, so at the same time that Danny's phone was starting to move east, another co-worker named Brandon Williams, who worked in the same, not in the same department, but on the same floor, he was very familiar with Danny, knew her car, knew her. He was, the way the MetLife building is, the, the front of the MetLife building faces Telegraph Road, which Telegraph is a big road. I think it's eight lanes across with a median that separates the four. And there is, you, you have to do what's called the Michigan left if you're going to go southbound. So there's two lanes to get out of the MetLife building. There's one lane that's for the people that are going to stay north. And then there's a lane on the left side for the people who are going to do a turnaround. So Brandon was in the left lane because he was going to turn around and Danny was in the right lane because she was obviously going to continue north. Now, Brandon looked over at Danny and noticed that there was somebody in her passenger seat and he immediately knew who it was. It was Floyd Galloway Jr. He has spoken to him. He knows him. There was no doubt in his mind that he knew the person in the driver's seat. That I'm sorry, the person in the passenger seat of Danny's car was Floyd Galloway Jr. At 5.03 p.m., a security camera at Kurt's Service Center on 11 Mile Road in Berkeley shows a Jeep Renegade driving eastbound. This camera was a half mile from Floyd Galloway's home at 2910 Oxford. Now, you may be wondering how they know that this Jeep Renegade is Danny's. Well, let me tell you. Do you remember what I said about her parents? Her parents lived in the country on a dirt road, and she had just been there the weekend before. Danny's car had a lot of dirt. If you were on the Michigan Unsolved Facebook page or group, take a look at the pictures. You will see pictures of Danny's car and the amount of dirt that was on it. If you 
can get your hands on the video from this surveillance camera, it's definitely her, her car. No question. I must have watched this video like a hundred times. It was her car. Like the dirt pattern is exact. Okay. So again, this service station is a half mile from Floyd's house. At 5.07 p.m., Danny's phone pings off a tower at Galloway's home. Very close to Galloway's home. At 5.30, Sarah, remember Danny's best friend, sends Danny a text letting her know that she did call off work because she had been toying around with it and she ended up actually calling off work. So she texts Danny, but she did not get a response. At 6.20 p.m., Floyd Galloway's cell phone turns back on for the first time since 3.56 p.m. So this entire time, there is no tracking of Floyd Galloway's phone. It's just by eyewitness accounts. Also at 6.20 p.m., so remember now, Floyd's phone just turned back on, and at 6.20 p.m., when his phone turned on, Danny and Floyd's Danny and Floyd's phones were both pinging off the same tower and showed in the exact same place. Then at 7.38 p.m., Floyd's turn, phone turns off. I am really having trouble talking today. I'm so sorry. So 7.38 p.m., Floyd's phone turns off. At 7.53 p.m., Danny's phone shows moving, heading west, leaving Berkeley. At 7.56 p.m., the same security camera at Kurt's service station on 11 Mile Road shows Danny's Jeep Renegade with a distinctive dirt pattern heading westbound. So it left Floyd's house at 7.53, and here we are at 7.56, yet again, a half mile from his house, on camera. At 8.16 p.m., call records show a tell show a tower ping near Danny's apartment. At that time, Danielle Stizinski's phone, I'm sorry, Danielle Stizlicki's phone turns off and never turns back on. At 8.38 p.m., security footage at a Tim Hortons on 10 Mile Road in Farmington Hills shows Floyd Galloway Jr. enter and purchase a coffee with cash. He asked to use the phone to call a cab. On the security footage, you can see Floyd Galloway remove a piece of paper from his jacket and the paper contained the number for a cab company and the address for which he wanted to be dropped off. This fact is one of the points that led to the charge of premeditated murder. It is noted that this Tim Hortons is a 10-minute walk from Danny's apartment in the most direct route. Also on the security footage, it is shown that he was wearing a dark blue jacket and black pants, not the suit that he was seen wearing by two eyewitnesses 
at approximately 5 p.m. at MedLife. At 9.04 p.m., cab driver Sylvia Morris picks up Floyd Galloway at the Tim Hortons. Sylvia testified at the 2019 preliminary hearing that Floyd's demeanor was really calm. At 9.20 p.m., Galloway takes her, has her take him to an apartment complex at 25325 Groden Drive, which is directly across Telegraph Road from the MetLife building. When he, when he leaves the cab, there is security footage at the apartment complex that she dropped him off at that shows him getting out of the cab and proceeding to pay with cash, walk towards the apartment front doors, and then he turns abruptly and starts walking in the direction of the MetLife building. Then at 9.37 p.m., security footage again from the Kurtz service station on 11 Mile Road shows what they believe to be Floyd Galloway's Buick Regal heading in the direction of his house. And then at 9.39 p.m., his phone turns back on and pings at the cell tower near his house. At an unknown time during all of this, Sarah's, Sarah, Danny's best friend, texts her. Actually, she did not text her. She figured that Danny had fallen asleep. So she went ahead and fell asleep herself. That brings us to December 3rd, 2016. At 10 a.m., Sarah texts Danny, Are you alive, LOL? Weird I haven't heard from you. You're making me worried. And again, the text was never answered. Sarah was talking to her parents and mentioned how Danny never showed up the night before or responded to her text, and they knew that this was extremely out of character. Sarah actually testified that Danny never not responded to a text. That said a double negative, I'm not sure. But Danny was extremely reliable and always responded. So this was extremely concerning to both uh Danny and, I'm sorry, to both Sarah and Sarah's parents. You know, I'm actually going to stop because I'm running out of time. And I do believe we're going to have a part two to this one because there's still a lot of more to go through. So I come back for part two in just a hot minute. <laughs>